How many of you just love waiting? Waiting in a long line, waiting for paperwork to get back to you, waiting in traffic, waiting for someone to get out of the restroom, waiting. Waiting can be miserable, or waiting can be refining and preparatory. That's where we find the apostles in our study of the book of Acts, waiting. Do you recall why they were waiting and what they are waiting for? Well, in our last section in Acts, that's Luke's prologue, verses 3 through 11, Jesus was preparing his apostles for continuing the advancement of his kingdom. He does this by confirming for them convincingly in his final 40 days with them of making regular appearances, his final 40 days of making these appearances on earth. He confirms for them convincingly that he is indeed risen bodily and that he is reigning as sovereign over God's present spiritual kingdom on earth. Jesus then commands them to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he clarifies for them that although the kingdom consummation is not yet, and that the timing isn't for them to know, the present phase of the kingdom is in fact a part of God's plan and is still marching toward that final consummation. So in conjunction with the command to wait for the Spirit, Jesus gives them the promise that it is the Holy Spirit's presence and His power that will provide the means for them to be witnesses, be the witnesses that Jesus has commissioned them to be. You can see that also in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Finally, though, the the Lord's ascension reaffirms that He is indeed reigning on high at the right hand of majesty. But also then the message of the two angels is that Jesus is returning. And this is a sure persuasion or motivation that we must be about our master's business when he comes back. And so the first task of the apostles, quite literally, is to wait. How did they respond to this command and promise? Wait for the Spirit. We will see first that the apostles obeyed by waiting. And then that they prayed while waiting. And finally, which we don't have time to get to today, so that's going to be part two of this waiting on the Lord's promise. We'll look at it next week, but I have included it for you here just so that you'll be mindful of of the connection of these things. They also planned while waiting. And it's important to note that they planned in accordance with what they were certain was revealed in the Scriptures. Let's read the passage together, at least verses 12 to 14, and then we'll do our best in the brief moments that we have together this morning to try to understand their situation and their calling in order to apply it to our own faith and situations of our lives. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Immediately after Christ's ascension, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. 
And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In spite of the uniqueness of their situation in their time and the specific outcomes for the apostles, there are principles to be derived from their practice that can serve for us as a model for our own posture and our own practice in waiting on the Lord's promise. Whether it's the long-term promise of fulfillment, kingdom culmination of entering his perfect rest. We're always waiting on that, aren't we? Eagerly waiting, watching, waiting. Or whether it's our waiting for the clarifying wisdom on on difficult issues that we face, or if we're waiting for, for times of refreshing from the Lord when we're facing great difficulty. Like the apostles, our response to God's command to wait on his timing, to experience the fulfillment of his promise, ought to be first that we wait on him by obedience. We wait on God by obeying. Notice in verse 12, after receiving the reminder from the angels that Jesus had had given them a command to go and wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Spirit, that's what the apostles did. They immediately obeyed. They returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is so close by, Luke tells us, so close as to be only the distance that they were allowed to walk on the Sabbath. And this is more a reference not to which day of the week it was, but to how close it is. Only across the Kidron Valley was the Mount of Olives across from the Temple Mount, and it was only half a mile away, or or they would have said some 2,000 cubits as far as they were allowed to journey on the Sabbath. So not far. Entering the city, the apostles went back to the upper room where they apparently had been meeting regularly during this time period after the Lord's death and resurrection. So during this, remember we said, turns out to be 50 days between Passover and Pentecost. During this entire period, they seem to have been repeatedly meeting in some place that had been provided for them. Recall that they're all from Galilee, so they would have needed places in and around the city to stay as guests. And certainly some place, which would have been undoubtedly a very nice house, with an upper room large enough to pack in about 120 people, verse 15. Also in verse 15 then, we ask ourselves, who are the 11 who led by example in their immediate obedience? Who are these 11? These apostles are really important to the foundation of the church, so Luke mentions them again by name, just as he did in Luke chapter 6, verses 13 to 16. Now, this list reads as groupings of four and then one group of three because one name is conspicuously missing, isn't it? The apostate Judas. 
There may not be a whole lot of meaning to, to these groupings of four, except that it does appear that Peter and John are listed first now, likely because of their prominence in the group. Previous listings of the apostles had family members grouped together, Peter and Andrew, James and John, and so on. But Peter and John are listed first. Now, because these men are so important and because the majority of them are not mentioned again in the book of Acts, only Peter, James, and John are mentioned again, I'd like to briefly review for us what we know of each of them in the order that they are listed. If you're a note taker, you might write these down, write something down about each one of these men to help it stick in your memory as to who they were in this group of the eleven. And I doubt you'll have a hard time uh, remembering Judas and probably not remembering who became his replacement, Matthias. The first in the list is Peter. Peter's Hebrew name was Simon. He fished for a living on the Sea of Galilee. Peter was married. Peter had come from the town of Bethsaida but owned a home in Capernaum. I gave a map for you, and I bet only about the front half of you can actually see the names of these cities, but that body of water there is the Sea of Galilee. Bethsaida is up in the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum to its west. And if you go down further southwest, you would find the city of Nazareth. Up north of that is the city of Cana. You're going to hear several of those names here as I speak about these guys. So Peter was from Bethsaida, but he owned a home in Capernaum, and apparently his brother Andrew lived with him there. Jesus called this Simon, he called him Peter, of which the Aramaic equivalent is Cephas, and a deliberate play on words by Jesus because both of those mean rock. Peter was originally about as pliable as a stone. But Jesus would change him. Jesus would mold this stone to become a useful rock as the leader and the spokesman of the 12. Who, these 12 who form the foundation of the house being built into the new messianic community, even the church. Then John, one of the sons of Zebedee, was a fisherman also from Bethsaida. John was unique among the 12 to witness the crucifixion, he tells us himself in John 19. And possibly he was unique among the apostles to live to an old age. Early tradition marked him as the author of the fourth gospel, which seems quite reliable, making him the disciple whom Jesus loved, as he called himself in those, those pages. As well, it makes him also then the author of the Apocalypse, which means the appearing of Christ, we call Revelation. That would make him the author of three shorter epistles that are preserved in the New Testament canon under his name. Peter, John, and then James is mentioned third, and he's none other than John's older brother. We think he's his older brother because in other listings his name came first. He's another son of Zebedee and also a fisherman. Jesus has a thing for calling fishermen to go be fishers of men. James and John got the nickname Boanerges from Jesus. 
sons of thunder. Most likely because they were intense and aggressive. We have only some examples of this in the Bible, but they brashly asked to sit at Jesus' right and his left in the kingdom. And then they were the ones who, when some Samaritans rejected Jesus, what did they want to do? Call down fire from heaven. James and John, the sons of thunder. Andrew was Simon Peter's brother and had been a disciple of John the Baptist before following Jesus. Andrew was among the very first disciples to begin following Jesus. He was present when John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God. And it was then Andrew who went and told Simon Peter, we have found the Messiah. And he took Peter to Jesus. That was Andrew. Like the first four, Philip was from Bethsaida. It was Philip in John's gospel who was approached by some Greeks. We learn in John 12, he was approached by some Greeks who really wanted to see Jesus. So then he went and told Andrew, and together they took the Greeks to Jesus. The apostle Philip, by the way, should not be confused with the Philip later in Acts, who became one of the seven deacons, Acts chapter 6 and who preached the gospel in Samaria, Acts chapter 8. That's a different Philip. Next comes Thomas, who also had the nickname Didymus, the twin, Thomas the twin. Now Thomas, contrary to our often calling him the doubter, I'm going to tell you a couple of other things about the twin. Thomas showed great courage as a disciple. It was Thomas who said in John eleven sixteen when they thought Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem and probably be killed, you know what Thomas said? Let's go with him and die. And after the resurrection, when he was present for the second appearance to the group, it was Thomas who confessed plainly Jesus as my Lord and my God, John 20, 28. You might also find it interesting, it's not in your Bible, but according to later tradition, which could be reliable, Thomas went as a missionary to India. Seventh in the list is Bartholomew, whom we believe to be the same as Nathaniel, who was from Cana in Galilee. His Aramaic name quite possibly may have been Nathaniel Bartalmai, the son of Talmai. So the name Bartholomew as it is given in these lists, could have been some kind of derivative of his surname. How many of you have ever been called just by your last name? Right? That happens to us. So perhaps it, it turns out that many of these guys, it makes perfect sense, many of these guys had nicknames as they were known by one another to distinguish one from another as they were common names. They also had nicknames that Jesus gave them. And then it also makes sense that they would have different names in the different languages spoken in the area at the time. But if this Bartholomew is one and the same with Nathaniel, then he had one of the more unique or more interesting interactions with Jesus when he first became a follower. So I'm going to take the time here for a second to read that to you. This is from John 1, 43 to 50. You're going to hear a couple other names. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. 
Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And you're picturing Nathanael going, What? Wait, wait. You saw where I just was? Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, probably now chuckling himself. Because I said I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. That's Nathanael Bartholomew. Then comes Matthew, also known as Levi, called both names even by Luke himself. The intrigue with Matthew surrounds the fact that he was a hated tax collector before following Jesus. Matthew Levi is also credited with penning the first gospel in your New Testament scriptures, much of which would have been firsthand eyewitness testimony, as with John. Matthew wrote down the things that he experienced himself with Jesus. James, son of Alphaeus, might also be the one in Mark 1540 referred to as James the Younger. Again, remember we said there's more than one James in the group. This James the Younger in Mark 1540, it says his mother was another Mary present with other faithful women at the cross, and whose brother was someone named Joseph. And since his name is listed Both of these men, James and Joseph, were likely known to the early church. Well, after James, son of Alphaeus, is Simon the Zealot. He's probably so called because before following Christ, he was likely among those known for being zealous for God's law. And not just zealous for God's law, but zealous for God's law with a particular focus on the liberation of God's people out from under the thumb of Rome. Simon may have been a Jewish nationalist prepared to engage in active resistance against the Romans until Jesus called him to follow him. Finally, the one whom Luke calls Judas, the son of James, is almost certainly the same as Thaddeus, which is the name that Matthew and Mark give in their lists. Luke probably gives his formal name, while Matthew probably gives the name that he went by in the group. These 11 set the example by their obedience to Christ in waiting on God's promise. I have a a brief tangential application for you today. You think about the names listed here. These people that God chose from among all the people of the earth, You look at these men and you think to yourself, they're not really special. There's nothing special about them except this one thing. Jesus chose them. 
by his grace, for his glory, Jesus chose them. And now make this connection. The names listed in scripture by the sovereign and gracious choosing of God, Abraham and Moses, David, the apostles, and then you realize, although your name is not listed in the canon of Scripture, if you belong to God by faith in Jesus Christ, there is a significant book called the Book of Life, and your name is listed there beside these. Can you believe it? Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. Unbelievable. And we get all that from a list of names. These are the names of the men who set an example by their obedience to Christ and waiting on God's promise. Are we obeying God in Christ Jesus? Consider again the model of the apostles. Why did they obey Jesus? And why did they do so immediately? Why did they do this? Because he is their master. They have no other. If my master is myself, I obey what I want, what I think is best. The Bible explains, though, that when I think I'm my master, I have allowed the arch enemy of God, Lucifer, also called Satan, to become my master. Jesus is their master, and so they obey him immediately. Notice then just how reasonable it is for us to put our faith only in Christ, only in God himself. Although we couldn't have faith in Christ without the quickening of the Spirit, that is, being made alive, being regenerated by the Spirit, we come to understand more and more as we follow Christ just how reasonable our faith is. Faith in anything else, anyone else, leads to destruction. It is hollow. It is fleeting. There's nothing under it. But faith in God, how reasonable. If Jesus is indeed the way, the truth, and the life, as he says of himself in John 14, 6, how unreasonable to put faith in anyone else. Paul calls this submission to Christ obedience of faith in his letter to the Romans. He says it in the opening words in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, and then again as he wraps up the letter to the Romans, he talks about this obedience of faith. Saving faith is initiated at a point called conversion, which itself is in fact an act of obedience. Jesus says, come to me. What must you do? Obey. Repent and believe the gospel. What is that? Obedience. Saving faith is obedience to God that Jesus Christ is the only way to be restored to him. And then obedience of faith continues to bear itself out as we obey Christ's command to abide in him, John 15. And to carry out his commands. His commands summarized by Jesus himself, summarized as, as loving God, loving one another, and then loving the others by bringing them 
the news of reconciliation to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we saw in Acts 1.8 that Jesus said, and Jesus had already taught his disciples, he, he went through Samaria on purpose. And his disciples must have been like, uh, what are we doing here? And then he went to Syria and he healed a whole bunch of people. Uh, what are we doing here? I am drawing all people to myself. That's what I'm doing. That is the call, that we lay down our lives like Jesus. We follow his lead and we obey his command. What seems so simple, though, is quite complex in the situations of our lives. So we add these two thoughts more. It will take a lifetime of studying and teaching the whole counsel of God. Because this process of sanctification, of growing to obey Christ means conforming our lives completely to him. But what better thing do we have to invest ourselves in? (laughs) What better thing do you have to pursue than knowing the character of God so that you will adore him more? What better thing do you have to pursue than God's command to obey him better. Secondly, in this particular context, there is a a command that requires waiting on the Lord for us to do what we cannot do for ourselves. This turns out to be an integral part of the entirety of the Christian life. Just as you came to Christ, Paul says in Colossians 2, 6, and 7, so walk in him. Just as you came to Christ... So walk in him. This plays out in trusting patience and trusting dependence. We must obey God in waiting on his timing by not trying to run ahead of what God is doing by any efforts of our own strength and ingenuity. And when we don't know for sure what God is doing, we wait on the Lord patiently to reveal it in his timing. The absolute best thing that we can do in the waiting is to commit ourselves to the Lord in dependent prayer. And that is precisely what we find this small company of first Christ followers doing in the waiting, devoting themselves continually in prayer together. So we wait on the Lord by praying. There can be no question that in the Bible, prayer is inextricably intertwined with waiting on God. In this period of waiting for the Spirit, which they they didn't know how long it would be, the apostles and the others were devoting themselves to prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is talking to God in submission and dependence on Him. Add that to your definition, please. Prayer is talking to God in submission and dependence on Him. I know illustrations are imperfect, but I wanted to think of something this week for my sake and yours. I I hope you find this helpful to help you understand how critical it is that you depend on God in prayer. Imagine that the Christian life is a human body and that God has now given us a heart of flesh that is actually alive spiritually. 
The life which God has given is the pump, the heart. And the work of the Holy Spirit is the oxygenated lifeblood in our veins. The problem is that in this world, we are living much of our lives in polluted air. Didn't we read a scripture this morning that the wisdom of the world is completely different from the wisdom of God? Look also in James to see that God's wisdom is not the same as the world's wisdom. We live our lives in polluted air. God has life-giving, oxygenated air for his people in his truth delivered to us, the Bible. And so we go to God to receive this life-giving, oxygenated air in his word. But submissive and dependent prayer is the actual breathing. It's worshiping God on his terms. We must go to God in dependent prayer for the clean, oxygenated air of the work of the, the Spirit through his word. To not do so is to hold your breath. <laughs> to deplete your oxygen and to try to to then work in your own strength. You're running on fumes. (laughs) I do this sometimes, you know, when I I go to do something for a very brief period of time and I decide I don't want to smell whatever this is and so I'm going to hold my breath while I try to get this accomplished and I'm terrible at holding my breath. So, you know, one minute to a minute and a half, I'm dying. I'm running on fumes. I need clean air. We might even see doing things in our own strength. We might see what appears to be success, but it will soon evaporate with the heat. We need the life-giving work of the Spirit from His Word for ourselves and others. Dependent prayer is the inhaling and exhaling of God's clean air, of his character and his will revealed in his word to be refreshed and renewed with God's power and wisdom from his spirit at work in us. And therefore, dear Christian, who believes that God's word is valuable, how foolish would it be to to even come to our reading and our studying of the scriptures holding our breath? One of the things that R.C. Sproul pointed out in a podcast I recently listened to He was quoting John Calvin as saying that the unique thing about God's word when you come to it is it is the the life-giving, breathed-out word of the Holy Spirit of God. And so you come and you listen to things that you don't want to hear. And you, it's what's best for me. I didn't come here to read this, God. That's not what I was looking for. But this is the life-giving truth that you have for me. And you breathe it in. And you exhale the waste of the world's wisdom. Prayer is breathing in what God has for me. Inhale more of God. Exhale less of me. More of God. Less of me. That's prayer. Submission and dependence. We don't know for sure what they prayed, but here are some possibilities. Praising and thanking God for glorifying himself in Christ Jesus. For his faithfulness to his promises and fulfillment through Jesus. For his sovereign choice in making them the foundational 
members for the spread of Jesus' spiritual kingdom and, and maybe praying for God to conform their hearts to his plan as they're waiting for faithfulness, lives that, that would confirm the message, for boldness or courage, for clarity, to not shrink from opposition, maybe even praying for patience in the waiting. <laughs> God, help us to wait patiently. Prepare us for what you have for us. Praying for guidance from God. If, if there's anything in particular, God, is there any particular action that you might want us to take uh, to plan in the waiting, which they end up doing? So too, are we demonstrating dependence and submission to God through prayer? There are two emphases in our text about this prayer of the apostles and the others who were with them. They prayed in unity and they prayed continually. Both of these are convicting for us individually and as a local community of believers serving and spreading the gospel together. The first emphasis is with one accord. It means unified. It means with one mind. They prayed together. And no doubt, nothing builds unity more than submissive independent prayer together. I'm immediately convicted of the need to be intentional about making prayer together a focal point in our interactions with one another, from our largest gatherings to our smallest, from corporate worship to meetings of leaders and meetings of volunteers to small groups and one-on-one relationships and phone calls. I confess that it's so important in an area of such needed growth for me personally, and I believe for our church family that as a servant leader among you, I feel like I've yet to plumb the depths of the ways in which we can practice this together. Please help me brainstorm and make suggestions. The second emphasis is that they were devoting themselves to prayer, which indicates in the Greek structure of the verb that this was something ongoing during this time frame of waiting, continually devoting themselves in this united prayer. They were praying frequently, and it undoubtedly means that they were investing focused and significant amounts of time to this endeavor. When you guys read stuff like this, I know you're like me, and you kind of feel guilty. How much time do I invest in prayer? But instead of being inclined to feel ashamed that, I, that you don't safeguard enough time for prayer, instead of wallowing in guilt, I think we need to be thinking of ways to conform our lives to this need of prayerful dependence and submission. Here are just a couple of suggestions. For, here's a suggestion for staying focused. Try keeping a journal while you pray. And most of you men are like, no, dudes don't journal. (laughs) Sorry if you do journal. I'm not trying to snatch your manliness. I have found recently again, especially under stress, that I find myself able to focus if I write down my prayer. I write it down. And then guess what? I also have it. And I can go back and look at the date. God, look what you did. Answer me when I call. I feel I'm at the, like I'm at the, the bottom of a wave, just being pummeled, and you have brought me out from under it. Much of our problem is wandering minds, 
Try writing down your prayers. Secondly, in some gatherings with fellow believers, here's a novel thought, have everybody in the room pray. I wonder how long it would take us to do that this morning. A group of 120 might have only had the leaders praying aloud, but they also might divide up into groups of 10 and everybody prays. Thirdly, even though I said a couple ideas, (laughs) make time and use opportunities alone to pray instead of filling it with other noise and distractions. In our society right now, we literally might be killing ourselves with distraction. Before the kids get up or after they go to bed, I know you don't all have children, but you have a phone. (laughs) Put your phone away and pray. When you're driving alone, you don't have to turn on the radio. I don't have to listen to a podcast. I could pray. Go on hikes alone and pray. You can worship God in prayer, even when your thoughts are just kind of wandering in worship of God. Lord, look what you've done. Lord, I pray for my family. Boom, my thoughts jump to. Lord, I pray for Pastor Rich. Boom, my thoughts jump to, right? I'm just... Worshiping God. We're out of time, so I'll just tell you this. In the end of verse 14, we have this question, who are the others who joined in unified and continual prayer with the apostles? But there's no way to have time to talk about that today, which I knew. I even put it in my notes. So we'll include that in our discussion for next time verses 15 to 26, and that there our emphasis will be, we wait on the Lord by applying scriptural principles to guide our plans. Searching, studying, submitting, memorizing, meditating. Well, how should we conclude this morning? Let's wait on the Lord together in prayerful obedience. We're always waiting on God's timing and ultimately on his final fulfillment of his promises. And since we're always waiting on God's timing, our lives must be marked by immediate and joyful obedience to what he has commanded and marked by this kind of waiting and submissive and dependent prayer. One final thought. Isn't the waiting itself not a part of the preparation What might God be teaching them in the waiting? I need you to be my church. You can't do this without me. I'm sending the gift of the Father, even the Holy Spirit. The waiting itself prepares us for what God is doing in us and through us. While we wait on the promise, let us prayerfully obey him in abiding dependence and submission. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to abide in you, to come to you in dependent and submissive prayer, to be able to go to your word and and get 
what it is that you're communicating about yourself, which is what we need more than anything else, is just more of you. And there you also tell us what your will is for our lives, how we may live to the best of our ability in a way that is pleasing to you. And it is that dependent and submissive prayer, though, that reminds us we cannot do this in our strength. And we need you to help us battle the flesh. And we need your strength and courage at work in us. God, we thank you for the privilege of reminding us of these very things, of dependence and submission to Christ, even as we take the Lord's table together. I pray that you will use it to draw us closer to you and draw us closer to one another as your people, as we obey you in taking the bread and the cup as you have commanded us. In Jesus' name, amen.